before spending that much time in in Dakar, I had, you know, I did, I did the mission trip thing. I not not the mission of religion necessarily, but I did a couple of medical mission trips where, you know, I was able to squirrel in my way in. I was had friends going on trips to Peru um, to serve kind of public health mission, and I was like, yeah, I, I want to go do that. So I had the chance to do some of that stuff, and it was amazing. But they were shorter, and and maybe with a slightly different cultural barriers, slightly different context. But I think before Dakar, I was like very set. I was like, I'm going to, I'm definitely doing Peace Corps. And I really was hoping that I would have a placement kind of within that region even. And I still think that could have been amazing. And I met a, a good number of volunteers while I was there. Um, but it ended up being the reason that I didn't pursue it, partly because of what you and Molly talked about. And maybe just because where I was sitting at the time, I couldn't reconcile my service as being the right thing for others, right? It was definitely going to help me. Um, but I don't think I was ready for a fuller context of like, how could I make that rounded? I think there are ways to do that. And you've, you've had some good conversations about that. And I'm happy to talk more about it. But at the time, that was that was kind of my signal of like, yeah, I came here and it, it was really good for me. You know, um, at least that's how it felt. It definitely felt that way at, you know, 21. So um, I still kind of wish I had done Peace Corps. So maybe someday again, right? I know, I know there's options, but yeah. I think that, you know, seeing for like firsthand some of the ways that projects play out or some of the ways relationships existed made me think maybe I need to look domestically or, you know, within my own culture, my own context as another option for ways to be of, of genuine, you know, benefit both to myself and service to my neighbors. So I think that was uh, an experience and, and you can look on both sides, but definitely it's sitting with its most important part. And there's, there's ways to be authentic on, on both sides of that choice. Today, I speak with Molly Maher. Welcome to Tetua with Benjamin Morse. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Molly Maher. She is a world traveler with a gift for storytelling, which allows her to bring years of travel experiences to life in a whole new way. She's got a background in health IT, journalism, educational design, behavioral science, and user research. And I had the pleasure of working alongside her in her previous position uh, for over three years within the Center for Academic Innovation at the University of Michigan. And by way of this work, I really came to know who she is and what she stands for. What really strikes me about Molly is her facility to meet the moment, whether in a professional setting or in an uncomfortable travel scenario. She is a true master of communication and connection with a strong sense of humility and a unique brand of awareness. In this conversation, we talk about travel, diving deep into the minutiae of what drives Molly to explore and to continue to explore. And we also talk about behavioral science and motivational interviewing, two of my favorite topics in which Molly puts a distinctive spin on as she connects various examples from social psychology with her experiences traveling across contexts. I thoroughly enjoyed this one and I'm positive that you will too. So with that, I bring to you Molly Maher. 
All right, Molly, we're rolling. Thanks for doing this. Of course. I'm very excited. So glad to have you here and to talk about one of my very favorite subjects, behavioral science and behavior change and habits and all of those things. And uh, you're definitely one of the right people to to chat about that stuff with. <laughs> yeah, likewise, I know how much we overlap in that area. So look forward to diving into it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm also excited to then throw the the layer of travel on top of that, uh, given, you know, your extensive travel experience and, and kind of the root of this podcast. And I I find that, you know, behavior change and just really that lens and that mirror that travel provides you. Uh, it, it really is is relevant when you're moving yourself outside of your kind of status quo, as I like to say. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. All right. So before, you know, before we get into it, I do have to put it out there that you are, in fact, a University of Colorado Buffalo and I am a Colorado State Ram. And, uh, you know, (laughs) go green, uh, go Rams. And, you know, we get along and it's fine. But I will say at at the core of everything. Uh, we're both University of Michigan Wolverines, so I just had to throw it out. Throw that yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think based on how intense the alumni network is around the globe, that Michigan may supersede a buff sports spirit. But don't tell my fellow alums; they'd be mad at me about that. But being born and raised in the Ann Arbor area, I don't think anything ever trumped kind of how much Michigan was in my in my blood. But I absolutely love Colorado and was fun to find out that we were rivals from the get-go right when we started working together. That's true. And you know, it's it's funny you say that. I, I definitely see that lens of like U of M kind of superseding those two in many ways. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, I grew up in Fort Collins. So you grew up in Ann Arbor. It's, a, it's an interesting relationship with a university in your hometown, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it changes a lot. I know my best friend in Boulder's dad's a professor at CU and I feel like her experience with the university and mine were different the way it would have been if she was in Ann Arbor. You know, you just, you know, too much almost and you're tired of it before you're there, but you still like it. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. You always kind of, you have to wait for the summer when all the students like leave and you finally like have your city back for a little, like a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) A true county. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. Well, I will also say that both of our our undergraduate institutions played a a core role in getting us out of Colorado in that moment and sending us, you know, across the world to study abroad. So that's something to be grateful for. for Yeah, for sure. The stuff I got to do there really set me up in a lot of ways. And I think even just getting out of my state was super important for me. So it was, it was foundational for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll definitely get into some of that. And you and I, we know each other from our previous work at the University of Michigan. And, you know, over the years, we've connected about travel and, and all of these other things. And, you know, that that culminated in an impromptu rendezvous in London a few years ago, which I think, like, really set in stone uh, that that travel connection. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. That was a fun trip. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think one of the good good places to start this conversation would be to go back a little bit and explore kind of uh, 
your roots and uh, you mentioned that you grew up in Ann Arbor. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, what it was like to grow up uh, in the Wolverine Central? <laughs> <laughs> so I think people from outside the state may not know the term, but if you are like a fan of Michigan, but you didn't go there or you're not from town, people will especially Spartans, our enemies will call you Walmart Wolverines. And I feel like that was kind of my family from where we're from. I grew up in like Metro Detroit, had a lot of Detroit roots, but I ended up going to high school and moving with my parents the last couple of years out to a place in Ann Arbor. And so um, definitely between like a childhood of going to games and being exposed to university and my siblings going through school um, and then my own experience moving out there, I have quite a connection to Ann Arbor and I lived there um, and in the greater area of Ann Arbor, including Ipsy for, I don't know, man, I was there for like 10 years, I think, before I moved out to where I am now, um, which is still in the metro area. So definitely a Michigan family. We've been here a long time and most of my family is is pretty close by in the in the greater metro Detroit area. That's awesome. And it's, it's such a unique place to grow up. And I, I had no idea like what Michigan was like Southeast Michigan before I just moved to Detroit after I finished my Peace Corps service in Ethiopia. And I, I remember moving to downtown Detroit and that was like the first air quote, big city that I ever lived in and and still like the biggest, uh, definitely one of the most unique cities I've ever lived in. Can you like, can you explain a little bit about like, what do you, what do you mean by Metro Detroit? Like, I think that that makes sense for, for folks that are in that area or Midwest, but you like kind of unpack that a little bit and talk about where kind of where you grew up within that bubble. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people probably have this feeling depending on their like near a city or if they were in a city proper, maybe exponentially important to recognize that in Detroit. So just like if you're in DC, maybe you actually live in Arlington, like if you're in the DMV area or Chicagoland versus being in the city. But for Detroit, I think it's a more storied history. You know, you have a lot of racial and inequitable experiences in the city and a lot of families, including some of my like background back to my grandparents and younger parents moved into what is kind of like extended suburbs. So out in Detroit, especially the North side just bleeds into a bunch of different other towns, some of which are amazing in their own right. Um, So if you're not from the city, I always thought it was like more appropriate for me to recognize that I wasn't right, that I'm from the metro area, but a lot of the metro area is great too. So there's a lot of things that kind of surround the city, um, which is huge in its own right. Yeah, no, that's, that's, thank you for setting that up. And I, you know, it's funny when I was living in, in Detroit proper, like in, in the downtown area, I was, you know, it's a huge city. It's expansive, like 142 square miles, gigantic city. Uh, And then if you go north up Woodward or 75, um, you end up going through like these various townships and like Colorado does not have the township model (laughs) like Southeast Michigan definitely does. And like you drive through these like they're legit towns. Uh, They have mayors, they have city councils like they're they're fully formed, but they're some of them are like a few blocks long. Like you you drive through Ferndale and like quickly you're going to run into like Huntington Woods. You're going to run into like Berkeley. And and, like if you blink, you miss them (laughs) because some of them are just so small. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think that's something I noticed moving out West. It was like, 
I was used to driving on the freeway and having very few breaks in the metro area. Like once you get out to Ann Arbor and you go west, you know, you start hitting more of the rural stuff. But I was really on the north side. So I was in Clarkston, which is Oakland County. And um, it's where the big mall is. If you were out in that area ever, it's kind of one of those sprawling areas. And when you went north further, it's like turned rural. So there was like horse farms close by. But if you went anywhere else, it was like surrounded by kind of sprawl really, but, you know, also with beautiful lakes and trees and stuff. So it's an interesting balance and I could see why it's surprising. And like all the friends I made in Colorado, like so few of them had ever been here or had any concept of what Michigan was. And I think probably thought I was from Minnesota for the first while. So I know it's an interesting place to be from um, when you go around the country, because not everyone has a relationship to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned that you moved to Ann Arbor uh, a little bit later. Where were you before that and what what led you to to Ann Arbor? Yeah, so we lived in um, a couple of different places in, in northern Oakland County, which is like the neighboring county to the Detroit seat, Wayne, um, and has a bunch of suburbs. And we were just in one of the suburbs, one of the cute, like you said, a village that kind of is a couple blocks long, like had one general store kind of place. Um, and had grown up there a couple different places. And then my dad got a job in South Ann Arbor. Like, you know, what Ann Arbor is like, if you go to the very far South side versus the rest of it, it it takes a minute. So we ended up relocating. And at that point, my siblings were both in college. So my family just moved closer to Ann Arbor. And I went to, uh, the last two years of high school, um, in Ann Arbor. So had the chance to see a really different side and transition from a different kind of school system to, to one in Ann Arbor. And that was kind of helpful for a uh, new experience and setting me up for probably picking a different college path and all sorts of exposures. So um, yeah, I got the chance to follow my parents in that way. That's awesome. Let's, I want to dive into that a little bit more because I think you have such an interesting uh, transition that happened when you moved to Ann Arbor, specifically around kind of your your process for uh, kind of charting your next steps in your journey and and kind of thinking about what what the best school was, kind of uh, you know how where you were going to take that, and really at I think you mentioned before around fifteen years old you had this opportunity to kind of choose your own adventure, choose your next path. Can you tell us a little bit more about that transition? Yeah, I almost forgot we talked about that. Um... Yeah, I have a really supportive parents and I think I am also the youngest and known to be like potentially uh, slightly over independent early. So, um, <laughs> I love the qualifier there. You're like, I'm not going to fully lean into this or own this, but I'm going <laughs> to just expose enough of my good and bad qualities at once. Um, we So they were really n- nice and saying like I had a couple of options, right? There was a couple of things they could support, a couple of things that were within logistic reach. And I had been going to Catholic school for 10 years and so had, you know, most of my cousins and my parents, like it's just partly from being in the Detroit school system and public schools had been really underfunded and kind of poorly supportive for a period when they were in the city and like coming out and just the familial history too. Like I had super Catholic grandparents and it just was a family thing. Right. But it really had become less so. I think our family evolved and like our perspective on education, the local education systems, like a lot of stuff had changed. And so they gave me a little bit of an option. Like here's a few places that we could go that are in our area. Um, And I had, in the end, there was like two schools that are really only several miles apart, 
even less than that, actually. They're, they're kind of stone's throw. You just cross the street and keep going. Um, and one was a Catholic school, which actually a couple of our colleagues went to. So I just thought that was funny because I, I, you know, being in the area, um, which is great in its own right. I'm sure good for lots of people. Um, but I had the chance to tour there and then I toured at the school I ended up going to, which is kind of an independent school, still had a lot of like privilege and all this stuff wrapped up in it because it wasn't a public school. Um, but it was much more like empowered and it didn't have any sort of religious affiliation and really a different kind of model of education. Like I came from, you know, tucking in your shirts into plaid skirts to a place where I heard people calling their teachers by their first name. Like it was a very different vibe for me. Um, But between the two, as much as I felt like the second um, non-religious school was a felt like it was going to be an adjustment. It felt like what I should try. And, you know, my parents supported that. And so I had the chance to go through that last couple of years there. And um, there's all sorts of people in Ann Arbor who went to that school <laughs> run into and um, they had a really good experience that came through that. And yeah, I think I, I don't know if in the moment I knew how much that was like an empowering choice or how much that might impact stuff, but grateful for the way it turned out. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be my my follow up question is to, you know, to see it at 15 years old, if you felt like this was going to be a transformational experience for you, if you can kind of sense that or if you were just kind of ready to go on to the next thing and just kind of see where it, it led you. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, what what do we know at 16, 15, like the perspective I had, I remember knowing it was going to be a big change. I think I didn't really want to do it because you're kind of peaking in your social ingrainedness right in your current environment. And I think it felt like it was going to be work to do something different or that I was losing something. But um, yeah, I don't know that I would have, I don't know what would have happened had I not. I have, you know, really close friends from both kind of my first and second schools who have done awesome stuff who I'm so close to. And so I'm sure it would have probably charted some way, but you know, this is our own, there's probably a few biases we could name here, or cognitive issues we could name here that are really interesting because the hindsight I have on it is so different than I would have um, had it gone a different way. So yeah, I'm not sure I had any idea um, if that was the right choice or, or what it would lead to, but I do think it added up in ways that probably got me out of Ann Arbor. Like it wouldn't have been unlikely for me to stay at a state school otherwise. So yeah. So throughout this kind of this transition or or maybe even before, where does travel come into the picture? Where do you start kind of, you know, getting out of uh, Southeast Michigan, maybe, for example? Well, you know, my family did a couple trips, nothing, nothing incredibly expansive. I have, you know, friends whose parents worked in the auto industry who got to live abroad or, um, you know, whose parents were faculty members who took sabbatical abroad. Like I didn't do a ton of stuff very young. We did do things like we, I remember going to the Grand Canyon. I was probably like six or seven and we got to go to beaches and on some trips. And I saw plenty, like definitely felt fortunate for some of the domestic travel and had some family in a couple of different places we got to go see. But really like high school was when I started being able to see more. So my family, my first international trip. My family went to Ireland and my dad's family's Irish. So that was kind of a, you know, a, a nice trip for everybody and an easy first uh, international experience for a family. You know, you get same language and some familiarity and it was pre wildly available internet. So it was easy to plan. Um, so we got to do that. And then 
I was hooked. I think I don't know if I really realized how much, but I've always been a bit of a like, I think I find a lot of interesting um, findings and like experiences and in, in new people and stories. And I've always been obsessed with reading and kind of into storytelling and all sorts of things that probably lend themselves to, to people who also like to experience stuff and travel. And um, I got hooked quick. So I, I did a people to people. I feel like actually one of your other friends talked about this on the podcast. I, I did people to people, which is a student ambassador program. Um and in a couple of ways, it has an interesting parallel track to some of the Peace Corps goals, right? It wasn't service oriented, but it was cultural ambassadorship oriented. So you, the idea is you're learning quite a bit, interacting with people and then bringing it back home. So um, I did that and that I did that around the, the Mediterranean. So I did Spain, Italy and France two or three weeks. I think I was, I turned 16 um, in Italy. Um, so very cool experience, like super lucky to do that. And there was dozens of kids from the Metro Detroit area. I think you were called the Metro Detroit chapter. So, you know, I got to make friends from other schools and all this cool stuff. So that was a big first, like that was probably the second time I left the country besides Canada, of course, because Canada is our backyard here. Um, but yeah, that was my, my first thing. And so I was so gung-ho and excited about it, had to like do all the planning and applications and help organized funds and stuff. So I was dedicated pretty early um, to that kind of experience. Um, and then I did my junior year of high school. I was part of a service learning group in Detroit, um, which was a really amazing program that kind of took modular approaches to, to really youth service learning. And we did everything from environmental learning. We went to go see kind of green design to, you know, understanding housing insecurity in our backyards and um, all sorts of experiences. And, and the last thing we did was a trip to the border of Mexico and Arizona um, and, and kind of spent a night on either side with families who had been experiencing what it was like to try to immigrate and some very at risk people on both sides and, and companies. And, and like, we really went, went to like a Lockheed plant and all sorts of interesting experiences, spent the night on the floor of a church um, with a bunch of people who were going across the border. So I think that was a pretty amazing experience and what it was like to um, observe and like, what does that feel like? And to challenge myself to do that as authentically as possible. And you know, I was 16 or 17 years old when we did that. And that was how I spent my spring break. So I think, yeah, that was a, that was a big one. So those two really kind of set me off, um, in high school. What I, what I absolutely love about all of that is first, I can just hear the passion pouring out through your, your voice right now. It's, it's very clear. And I hope it's clear folks tuning in that, you know, these experiences were, were visceral, they were life-changing and they were transformational in, in many ways. And I like, w this is the spot where I get really excited. Like when I start hearing people talk about the the way in which travel changed them, the way in which travel kind of opened up that aperture uh, for their lives. And, and either it's happening in the moment and you're aware of it, or maybe it's 
10 years down down the line where something kind of clicks and you start to reflect a little bit and understand a little bit more about a particular trip you took or um, some some other tr- uh, type of travel that you've engaged in. And I love your two examples because it's, you know, you don't necessarily have to go to Ireland. Like I really like your example of, of going into Detroit and kind of exploring your backyard and, and getting to know, uh, you know, a, a very different uh, situation than than where you were kind of residing where your where your house was where your home community was but it's just down the street right and like i really i love that juxtaposition and those two examples uh are just really fantastic so thank you for sharing those with us and so so after uh you know graduating from from your your high school in ann arbor uh what led you to the university of colorado why boulder why, yeah. why did you want to go be a, a hippie in Boulder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not Boulder? I mean, really funny choice. My last two schools that I was choosing between was UVM in, in Burlington or Boulder. <laughs> so I think, I think my personality was shining through pretty early there. Um, I think for me, I, I had decided that I really loved photography. I was, you know, took every class that they would let me take in, in high school and that was a lot. I think my last semester I had like two independent study hours and like lived in the dark room. So I was very dedicated to an idea that I wanted to be a journalist. And um, there's not a wealth of programs necessarily. There's like a good number of schools that do that well. And then there's a number of schools that don't have majors, but have good news reporting programs or like student news sources. And, you know, I was, it was a competitive application process, I was really excited because CU had a dedicated college at the time. I ended up being the last graduating class from the University of Colorado's School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Um, So that really sealed it for me. It was a good fit to study. And I also love to ski. (laughs) I love to hike. And I think I was so thrilled to get out of my own backyard. You know, I think a lot of really solid journalists have come from reporting at the Michigan Daily and, and getting a comms or English degree or whatever they choose to study. But for me, it was exciting to have my core schooling be focused on something I thought I was really ready to do as a profession. So CU lined up and, and offered so much more than just the school, right? So I, I was lucky. Yeah, that's amazing. So when did you when did you kind of decide or maybe maybe you stumbled upon it that you wanted to be a storyteller or you wanted to kind of pursue journalism as a career? Yeah, I I should go find what was my statements of purpose for for college apps. But I yes, yeah, you'd probably be embarrassing at this point. But I, I think I always loved storytelling. Like I've always been really into writing I remember like my poor mother, I, as a little kid, I used to just make stuff up a lot, right? I was like that kind of storyteller. And I'm sure, you know, with your voice that this is a, an age and a stage development thing. So the best I kind, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could weave a story, right? So I think as soon as I realized that you could do that through writing too, like I was doing, we, everyone had creative writing assignments as young kids, right? And a lot of people would just get them done. Like I loved doing it. So I knew earlier um, and had the chance to kind of do a, I went to a pre-college program in in New York City and and did a creative writing class there that I really like dug into. And I was like, I think I should write. I think I should do this. And I love photography and I love to travel and see and meet new people. Like these three things really line up. 
Um, and I think underlying all of that was this uh, kind of like service or impact oriented idea. I don't think I knew how to state those things yet. And I think businesses that that served that mission beyond something like a media group or a nonprofit were still emerging. So at the time, it felt like, well, if I want to help people or do good in the world, then maybe telling a story is the way to do it. I have these couple of skills and interests and it just lined up. Um, and I really thought I'd be an international reporter, right? So I think I went into school, I did a international media certificate and studied abroad. I was really like pretty sure um, that I would be bopping around and, and trying to tell stories alongside, you know, reporters and, and sources in other countries. That's amazing. And, and such a, a really cool genesis of that, that passion and, and skill set that you developed. And, you know, having known you for a few years, it's like, it's so apparent and obvious. And like, as you're talking, like light bulbs are going on in my head of times in which you kind of took the lead on storytelling and various projects that we worked on. So that's, that's really cool to hear that genesis. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you, you mentioned, uh, study abroad I mean, let's, let's go there. Uh, yeah. you know, what, when did you study abroad? Where did you, where did you do it? Yeah, I did my, uh, fall semester senior year. So I was a, a four-year student and, um, that would have been 2010 and I went to Dakar, Senegal and spent a full semester there in a program focused on language and culture, but that kind of sufficed a bunch of credits for international studies and lived with a family. The program was run through um, an educational group. There's a couple of these that you you probably know, some of them um, that run their own school. So it wasn't like I was a student at, you know, the major university in Dakar. I was a student in a program with other American students, um, but with domestic instructors. So you know, our instructors were all Senegalese and um, program managers and families and stuff to kind of get us grounded there. Um, and it was run by CIEE. And yeah, I studied a bunch of different things, including kind of women's studies. And I think there was a film class. I did two languages and just had an amazing handful of months there. So what stands out to you from that experience? Like what what is the... What is the one story you want to share with us here? <laughs> one story. That's tough. It's such uh, an impossible question, by the way. And and I'm the one yeah. asking the question, so I'm allowed to do that. But yeah. <laughs> I, I've been on the receiving end of that before. I know. So. <laughs> I, know. I also love asking the name one question because it's important, right? I do think synthesizing matters and, and thinking about what stood out. Um, you know, I, I might not have said this in a different conversation, but because of the arc we're taking, and I'm thinking back to, you know, talking about my first times kind of doing travel that pushed my cultural understanding or helped to round boundaries that I had. Um, I really think that like looking back to the trip I took to the border and like to spending authentic time with people whose life was very different than mine and having the chance to really see that firsthand, that's, that's what this was, right? I knew going into choosing, I studied French and it was a little late to learn Spanish fast enough. I tried, I'm still trying, but I knew. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. And we need to, but I, I, I knew I wanted to go somewhere where my access wouldn't be authentic unless I really had a long time. And I had a sort of appropriate way to engage with people. So 
because this program was like developed and and had families that were recruited and and given like you know fair accommodations and good situations with students it felt like all right well i can go live with a family and and learn something about a place where like if i went to dakar now and spent two weeks there i would have hardly the service understanding that i had and you know i only had those months and imagine the people who have had the chance to to live there who are from there who who kind of understand even more fully and um yeah there's a real contrast of what was my home and what is that city like you know it's it's west africa it's majority muslim um it has developed in a lot of ways but is still developing in many others it has a colonial history that's different than ours it has kind of a storied past and presence in in the area um really interesting culture and super special people who were very welcoming to me in a lot of ways and, and taught me a ton so i think that you know i, I it really doesn't have one story, but if the one story is anything, it's like it gave me a context for at least that one place and, you know, a slightly better context for some of the neighboring countries or other sub-Saharan African countries that have some similarities to each other, right? And I wouldn't have had nearly the same understanding um, of anything in that area without that experience. Well said. And that's, it's such a beautiful sentiment. And I, you know, for you to to be going into an experience like that with that level of maturity is, is just really impressive. Like that, that is something that I don't see very often. I think that, you know, having traveled a lot when you were younger and having experiences in Detroit and, uh, other kind of, you know, removing yourself, uh, from, from kind of everything that you're used to and putting yourself in situations where you, uh, are learning a lot of new things and you're exposed to a lot of, uh, just very different approaches to life. I think that set you up really well for this. And like, I, I just applaud you for that, that mentality. Were you, were you aware of, kind of that was that one of your like learning goals going into it is to like really just be present and to to sit with that and try to just authentically engage with folks and learn and you know how were others that were on the trip kind of treating that that same uh yeah challenge? that's a good question um definitely for me like i could have gone to france right i could have probably gone and studied somewhere else i had a lot of friends who went to like barcelona and it seemed awesome but I knew I knew that aspect of kind of expanding my understanding of, of cultural studies, of, of figuring out if I can meaningfully engage as my identity in a country like that, because I was really strongly considering Peace Corps. I was really strongly considering serving um, an international like media group if I could get the opportunity. And so I wanted this experience as a way to see, but I also was just and still am like really want to go anywhere. So I think as long as I can do it in a way that's respectful, I love being somewhere else and I love meeting people and understanding better. And um, I think Dakar is the perfect place for a lot of that um, and still have a lot of love for that place. I think my fellow students all had similar aims in some ways and, you know, they have a good application and kind of orientation process, CIE, um, as an organization does. But I still like as much as I had good intentions was still so naive in so many ways. And I'm sure you've had these feelings. And yeah, I, you know, I don't think I fully realized how little of the language I would have going to this country because they speak, you know, several in every conversation. Um, 
And I think understanding better, like which dominant languages and, and kind of practices and stuff, I had a sense, but not nearly a very good understanding. I think looking back, it's funny how I went there being like, oh, man, I really hope my French is strong enough. And like I ended up, you know, 80% of what we were talking on the street isn't that. And, and certainly everyone's fluent, especially in the cities. Um, but it was eye opening, right? And I really, I went in gung ho with with only so much understanding. Um, but I think I, I had pretty good intentions. That does not mean it always played out perfectly. And, and that's an experience, right? And understanding your your abilities and, and places where you're challenged. And I was so much quieter as a resident in that country and in my specifically in my household than I am as a person in general. Right. So it, it challenged me um, to find something different. And I know like if you talk to my sister, especially, she always says I came back with like a little bit more of a voice, I think, because it was a challenging thing sometimes to find the fit and to figure out how to speak up with a bunch of new languages in a totally different context and making new friends and, and really some things that are just so new to me that it was a challenge, but other things that were just so um, innately great about connecting with other humans that I really valued. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think a lot of those challenges are symptomatic of like the structure that, that you're put in as, you know, as someone coming in to a situation like that. So on, on a previous conversation on the podcast, I talked with Molly Green about white saviorism and aid-based economies and these like really macro structures and systemic issues that are pervasive across these types of experiences, whether it's study abroad or Peace Corps or mission trips, those, those types of experiences, like you're stepping into a structure and history and just so much nuance that it's impossible to be aware of all of that going in. And I think that, you know, your approach of just being as open-minded as, as possible is, is probably the best approach and, um, you know, listening and learning and really taking your time rather than coming with kind of solutions for things. Um, but it's hard. I mean, we all, we're all, you know, guilty of that as well in, in certain circumstances and examples. And, you know, working through that is, is really one of the best benefits that the classroom of travel can offer anybody like being able to go out there and and cut your teeth on on those experiences and those challenges and feeling uncomfortable with the language and with the new smells and the new interactions and the new kind of relearning the history of an area and trying to like actually figure figure out where you and your identity and your body fit in right those th those tensions are, are are so present but they're just so healthy and important to to think about yeah i absolutely agree i think before spending that much time in in dakar i had you know i did i did the mission trip thing i not not the mission of religion necessarily but i did a couple of medical mission trips where you know, I was able to squirrel my way in. I was, had friends going on trips to Peru um, to serve kind of public health mission. And I was like, yeah, I, I want to go do that. <laughs> so I had the chance to do some of that stuff and it was amazing, but they were shorter and, and maybe with a slightly different cultural barrier, slightly different context. But I think before Dakar, I was like very set. I was like, I'm going to, I'm definitely doing Peace Corps. And I really was hoping that I would have a placement kind of within that region even. And I still think that could have been amazing. And I met a, a good number of volunteers while I was there. Um, but 
it ended up being the reason that I didn't pursue it, partly because of what you and Molly talked about. And maybe just because where I was sitting at the time, I couldn't reconcile my service as being the right thing for others, right? It was definitely going to help me. Um, but I don't think I was ready for a fuller context of like, how could I make that rounded? I think there are ways to do that. And you've, you've had some good conversations about that and I'm happy to talk more about it. But at the time that was, that was kind of my signal of like, yeah, I came here and it was really good for me, you know? Um, at least that's how it felt. It definitely felt that way at, you know, 21. So, um, I still kind of wish I had done Peace Corps maybe someday again. Right. I know, I know there's options, but yeah, I think that, you know, seeing for, like firsthand, some of the ways that projects play out or some of the ways relationships existed made me think maybe I need to look domestically or, you know, within my own culture, my own context as another option for ways to be of, of genuine, you know, benefit both to myself and service to my neighbors. So I think that was uh, an experience and, and you can look on both sides, but definitely it's sitting with it's the most important part. And there's there's ways to be authentic on on both sides of that choice. Yeah. And, you know, over the many conversations you and I have had about these topics and related topics to travel, like, I think that, like, you've had so many experiences in your life that, that, you know, I would equate to very, very similar uh, as, as being a Peace Corps volunteer. And it's, it's not as, you know, it's not like having that, that experience as a volunteer is gonna, like, really set you apart in that realm. You've traveled to how many how many countries have you been to? You said over 30, I think. Yeah, I'd, I have to look. I know it's more than 30. We did the count when I turned 30 um, to make sure. But solid. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and so like you and I are in, in a similar boat there. And I think that like how to authentically engage is something that is never you're never going to achieve that. Right. That's never going to be an end state that you're just so good at it that like, hey, I'm here now. I'm like the expert. It's always a wayfinding exercise. It's always, you know, trying to go through it. And yes, you can have like very intentional approaches on how you travel and you can, you know, really have a, a nice solid framework uh, for how to engage with with folks and how to, you know, best impact the folks that you run into and, and interact with while you're abroad. Uh, but you're never going to be that that perfect, quote unquote, perfect traveler. And I think that pressure can be really, really high when you're, you know, jumping out and you're going to a, a country or a context that is so incredibly different than what you're used to. And I think a lot of folks are, they're, they're afraid of that. And I don't think it's necessarily like afraid of like messing up, but it's, it's that like just the, the forced growth that you have to go through to put yourself in those situations. Right. So, but when I hear you talking, like, I mean, I definitely credit you for just being as open, uh, throughout your experiences as you have been, and just being so incredibly articulate on what has been really important with those travels. Like it's, it's really, really hard to, to share a story uh, about uh, your experiences abroad with somebody that didn't go on that trip, right? You always think of like the weird uncle that's showing the slideshow of like uh, like two hundred pictures or whatever, um, or you think of like like my wife and I when we 
when we're in a room and there aren't a lot of other people that have traveled or there aren't a lot of other, like there are no other Peace Corps volunteers that are in that room. Like we intentionally withhold certain stories or we, we kind of withhold that side of ourselves because it's one of those things that you almost need to be around others that have experienced something similar to be able to connect. And once you're around other people that have gone through that, like you literally talk for hours and hours. That's the entire point of this podcast, right? It's, it's you know, d- rediscovering those stories. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right about that. I remember talking to you about this stuff um, generally and just background and, and you mentioning Peace Corps and, and going down a rabbit hole of different experiences we've had and totally agree. I think when you're with the right company, it's, it's nice because you also share that grounding. Um, and certainly it's taken me time to understand that. I'm lucky that I've had the chance to continue all sorts of experiences, plus, you know, studying kind of both health behavior and and human-centered design and, and stuff that really gives you context for for the site, for the grounding of what cultural studies is and, and for the context of those experiences that we've, we've both been lucky to have. And um, yeah, it's, it's been impactful, but I, I hear what you mean. Sometimes it's important to, to remember the space and that not everyone's had that chance or not everyone gets it. I know I I came back from studying abroad trying to get people to do all sorts of stuff they weren't interested in, like I cooked them food and tried to have them eat out of a bowl with me the same way that I would have with my family there. And, and it was funny. It didn't fly, but it was, it was important to share too. Uh, I have so many of those funny stories, but I do have to share one of them. When I, I came back, uh, about halfway through my service, uh, from Ethiopia to come back for my cousin's wedding. And I brought back with me raw coffee. So Ethiopia is just, you know, super famous for coffee. I almost don't even need to say that because I think most people know that. Um, and I, I came back with this like just green coffee beans and like what you do in Ethiopia, there's an entire ceremony. It's really beautiful. Sometimes it takes, you know, several hours to get through everything where you basically start with these, these green beans and you roast them over like a char- little tiny charcoal stove. Um, and you just roast the beans until they're at the, at the right, um, you know, color and and texture. And then you, you know, you take a mortar and you crush them down and you like grind them yourselves. And then you put it in what they call a jebina, uh, which is, you know, like a clay uh, pot. And you boil that over the open flames as well. There's just so much beauty to it. And there's so much ceremony and history and like really like specific, you know, roles that, that men and women play and kids and priests. And it's just like so overlaid with just beautiful Ethiopian culture. And so I brought these beans back to Colorado with me and I was trying to roast them, but I didn't have any of the things that we would normally have in Ethiopia. So like I'm legit, like in my parents' kitchen, trying to roast these beans, the smoke starts going everywhere. I set off every smoke alarm in the house. Like it was just a complete disaster. And we never actually even ended up using the beans because like I basically ruined them. And it was, it was one of those like moments of like, yeah, well I tried <laughs> swinging yeah. a miss and uh, maybe you should come to Ethiopia and visit me and we <laughs> can try it there, which my family did to their credit. So <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I know this feeling. It does it as much as you want to share. And sometimes it works, but often it just feels like a hollow representation of the real, the real deal. Right. And I'm so glad they had the chance to visit and, it's making me laugh. My my awesome host family in Dakar, I we exchange all sorts of recipes and the cooking together, but they go like, make me something that you would make at home. 
And here's the city with like, you know, some very familiar stuff. They eat a lot of, you know, fish and rice. And my favorite dish there was just a bunch of onions and they have a lot of cuvettes with, with um, just French bread sandwiches of all sorts, like things that are familiar. But they also had somewhat inconsistent electricity at the time and like not a ton of reliable refrigerating and really didn't eat a lot of dairy. And I was like, I'll make you mac and cheese. And you can imagine that that turned out funny because they don't have the same kind of cheese. They had plenty of ingredients. I went to the French market and found some stuff, but it tasted funny even to me, but you know, they liked it fine, but I was sitting there melting something that looked kind of like a laughing cow cheese to try to make a, a good representation of what would have been mac and cheese. And it was, I, I probably never made scratch mac and cheese before I was there, which was another funny part, but you know, it's exactly the same idea. We had the swap back and forth of, me trying to show them something that might've been like a slice of home and vice versa. When I came home, I made something that tasted not a quarter as good as they would have made it, but was a nice way to kind of share what, what meals looked like um, with my family. Yep. I I have a huge smile on my face. Cause I, I just have like, I mean, countless stories of those types of interactions where like, maybe it's a wild success and you introduce someone to something new and that's just always really cool. But there are so many of those attempts that are just like absolute failures where you're like, just the looks from from people like when you try to do something and it just doesn't quite work or there's some sort of like cross-cultural communication, like lines that get crossed and like no one knows what you're doing and now you're just like the weird guy that like eats a like raw eggplant for example (laughs) which i don't do but they thought i did you know so like there's just so many of those moments whether it's like coming back to the states and sharing trying to share culture uh or you know living abroad and trying to like interact and learn or share your own culture like those those moments are just incredible like that defines so much of travel and the benefits of of kind of stepping out of your comfort zone right yeah Absolutely. Plus hilarious. Yes. I totally know why you're smiling. Yes. So you mentioned uh, like, you know, health informatics and and kind of behavior change in in that realm. Do you want to, you know, tell me a little bit more about kind of why you shifted into that field and maybe some of your time uh, in graduate school at the University of Michigan? Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll give you the the 30 seconds like I do in, in job interviews. I really, um, I finished college in 2011, um, quite a, an impactful time in media, which it continued to be, you know, for the last decade. Um, but a lot of the jobs that were coming up were challenging and like, I wasn't sure I wanted to move to certain places or, or if I wanted to kind of be the only staff member on a tiny newspaper in a tiny town. I just really like was wavering in what I wanted to do. And I ended up um, coming back home. So I came and I lived in Ann Arbor and I found a job um, that was a good extension of what was my capstone reporting um, in in college. So in college, I had an assignment with the University of Colorado at Denver, had a special group that did health policy reporting and I moved home and ended up working in, in communications for the health system at the University of Michigan, um, which was a good fit in a bunch of ways. I got to do creative writing and kind of you know strategic things and thinking about users and things that were a good fit for me. But I ended up on a project where we launched the patient portal, which you know lots of people are now familiar with. At the time, was kind of newer, um, newly available, especially at the university system. Um, and I nerded out really hard about all of the project and got the chance to see 
what the IT side was operating like, what some of the data access policies were, you know, simple, very human things that happen on the on the decision-making side of something like a patient portal, like how many days do we hold back your cancer diagnosis before we allow it to be published? Like things that really matter. And I think I got excited and uh, applied to grad school. I knew I didn't really want to be a, I, I liked some of my job, but I, I, marketing wasn't really doing it for me. And um, so I applied to the health informatics program, which is between the schools of public health and information at U of M, which are both really awesome programs. And it was maybe the third or fourth class to go through this program. So a very new uh, joined degree and um, did that. So um, went through that program for a couple of years. Um, I know we overlapped in some of the things we were interested in while we were in school. So some human behavior stuff. Um, and I really squarely sat in the health side. So I was, my biggest project was um, on a, a patient and family facing tool to give you access to data um, while you're, what was a pediatric bone marrow transplant for. So inpatient kind of, educational and support tool to understand how your child's doing as they go through what is some of the hardest um, medical interventions ever. So I did ethnography. I like kind of lived on that floor for a few weeks and um, interviewed and did a lot of kind of information probing and, and understood the some of the behavior behind that, but I was very much on that like tech side. So there's some gaps I had that some of my colleagues at the School of Public Health have much more of, but was really glad to get that exposure I did and, and glad to have put some of it to use while we worked together, too, um, in this last role. Yeah, that's that's a really good overview. And I, you know, I, I know that you know, behavioral science is a gigantic field and uh, there's a lot of different applications. And, and my background in behavior change is focused on the environment and environmentally responsible behaviors and, you know, how you can, uh, you know, help either uh, at the individual level folks, you know, make more environmentally conscious decisions in their daily lives. Uh, how you can you know bolster those types of efforts at community levels or even at the the policy and, and politics level, and like that is such a fascinating place. I know that you and I have also talked about uh, just simple behavior change, just like how how some people are really good at it and other people can't quite you know <laughs> grasp it, um, and how sometimes a behavior is is really like difficult to do one day and it can be really easy to do the other day. And like, there's just so much psychology and, and like you mentioned, other epistemologies and disciplines that underpin all of that, uh, that are super fascinating. So I, I'd love to get into some of that with you. And you mentioned previously that, you know, motivational interviewing was kind of a, an underpinning of your personal experience. Can you talk a little bit more about maybe what that is and, and how you've applied that in the past? Yeah. Um, Definitely. Motivational interviewing is a is a tactic to really a method of conversation. So if you've talked to a very well-trained physician or to a health coach, they may have, have asked you some questions that sound things like, on a scale of one to 10, how willing are you to try to change that behavior? How motivated are you? Um, and in the concept and why I like motivational interviewing, and I, I'm there are people who I got the chance to work with, including, you know, my former boss that you know well, who are really, really practiced at this. And I had the chance to use it, but I'm less so. Um, but as a method, I like it because it really is designed to meet people where they are. And some of the tenets of it are about responding to those people. So 
you know, I was thinking about talking to you today and just how much the intersection of experience of authentic travel and kind of authentic behavior change can can relate to each other. And one of those things is, is something like motivational interviewing forces you to ask the person about their values and ask the person about what they think and want and need and don't know. Um, and if you assume you're going to fail, like making too many assumptions and motivational interviewing will really, really plummet the results. Um, but if you do it well and you, you roll with the resistance is a phrase from it. So, you know, if you hear someone putting up guards, you know how to kind of ask a question that might disarm them a little bit. Those are things you practice when you meet people who are different than you and things that you practice when you have to practice interviewing in general, like you're doing on this podcast, right? And I think that's what's kind of beautiful about that method. It has some also very powerful um, sub items that I would like point out, like some of the things like being able to push someone a little bit beyond where they thought they wanted to go and, and using language in a very careful way including kind of like ulti, ultimate like double negatives and, and absolutist phrases that can really help people get to their cognitive dissonance. Motivational interviewing is really supposed to point out where what you're doing or what you want to do is either in line or not in line with your values um, and help you see that you're, you're willing to take a step. Um, and I think that it's, a, it's beautiful in that way because it's, it's very person focused and responsive. Yeah, that's that's a really fantastic description, and I I love I love your kind of travel stretch a little bit there, uh, because it's it's just so true. I mean, going in and and listening to folks, and I think the cognitive dissonance that that side of things I think really resonates with me. Where when you you know when you when you're kind of getting yourself out of a, a certain uh, kind of similar track of, of behaviors and you're yourself moving into a, a new physical space with just a completely new environment around you, you have an opportunity to kind of like hold up that mirror and see, see like what, what you really are, like what behaviors you, you kind of gravitate toward naturally. Uh, what are those like really stubborn habits that you've built up and does that align with your values and does that align with who you want to be? Right. And, and that's, that to me is, is such a fascinating place. Yeah. Agreed. Totally. Yeah. Um, and you know, like, you know, thinking through other, other areas that you and I have talked through around behavior change, I know that, you know, for the, the new year, there's always the fun kind of like, I'm going to change this habit or <laughs> I'm going to, I've got this new year's resolution and I'm going to, I'm going to completely change this, this behavior. And I feel like people often end up kind of puttering out around week two or three. <laughs> and I just, you know, like behavior change is so hard and it's so complex and like, you know, it's, it's, it's just a really tough thing to do. So like, I don't know what, what resonates with you from that? <laughs> so much, um, both <laughs> from a practice or like some of the exposure I've had in school or working and personally, right. It's, it's impossible. And I'm a, I'm not my best friend about some of the habits that I would like to change, even when I have those tools. So I think that goes to show you that it's, it's just hard. Um, I, and a couple of things resonate. One, the fresh start model is is always a joy. And there's a reason that searches for diets or searches for gym memberships go up, you know, for New Year's. They go up on Mondays, the first of the month. I think we are, as a culture especially, and I think that's something I would point out about 
my personal understanding in behavioral science and, and really the field's per understanding is limited by who we've had the chance to observe and study. So it's kind of a Western thing. It's very American. We love a fresh start and we also are very individualist. And um, I think part of really interesting and important research has shown us that if you have a higher ordinate goal, that that's helpful, right? So ask yourself the several whys. Don't stop at the like, oh, I'm dieting to, to just lose weight or I, I'm I'm going out to run because it's important to me to do well in this race. Um, really, you got to get much deeper to find a sustained intrinsic motivation. And, and it's true in a bunch of studies, if you can go through through more wise until you're at one that really sits with you in a way that's strong, it's going to help. But that's also different place to place. And, and we really don't fully understand. And I think behavioral science is going to have an amazing explosion of, of research and understanding of people who aren't us. Um, I think you and I would fall into the type of people who would have been studied in some of these seminal works, um, college graduates, students, lots of psych students, um, but also some other contexts. And there's been a really good amount of work coming out of um, like focused on interventions that would serve a different population. So there's some some cool work coming out of um, some orgs where they go in and try some of the things that have been tried in U.S. studies for, you know, places like where you had projects in Ethiopia, you know, like they're looking at like how, how do we help those contexts with better saving habits? Like, is it about the intrinsic motivation and, and turns out maybe not like some of the stories are more like it really matters who you ask. You have to ask the right person in the household. You have to set up whatever norms. So I think I would just note that, you know, my personal understanding was really grounded in some stuff that comes from the, what they call the weird psychology. You know, it's like whatever the right acronym is white, educated, rich, like really that's, it's a lot of the studies we know. And as we get more context, we're learning more interesting things. And really, I think in that way, you've, you've mentioned lenses and mirrors a couple of times. I think behavioral science can end up being a probing activity into better understanding cultural differences and cognitive variants across groups, because it's going to show us when it's not the same and, and understanding why is going to be unlocking an understanding of, of kind of cross-cultural experiences in a really interesting way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's, that's a really fantastic summary. And, um, you know, I think of many times and I think it's really common in the, in the Peace Corps too, in, in particular where, you know, we're given a set of resources, uh, whether you're an education volunteer, health volunteer, an environment volunteer, a business volunteer, we have kind of this, this paradigm approach for, uh, going in and, and empowering community members to uh, to kind of collaborate with us to solve problems, right? And in the beginning, we're trying to use what are called PACA tools, participatory analysis for community action, which is largely just like a huge microphone to listen to the community to better understand like what are the issues, what resonates, and like what are some potential areas of focus for your service. And I can't help but then also connect the dot to the types of resources that volunteers are given, uh, whether it's like Project Learning Tree or Project Wet or Project Wild, which are these environmental education resources, K through 12, that are like basically, to speak directly to your point, designed for American children uh, that have like a certain level of access to um, 
resources within their school, uh, but also like a certain level of access to nature, a certain level of access to the places in which these types of uh, learning experiences can take place. And there's just such a, a chasm. There's a huge gap between those two worlds. And I remember thinking like having to go through and, and adapt uh, those lesson plans. And one of the the things that we learn in, in my graduate work in environmental education is basically how to take those, those lesson plans that are developed or those resources and how do you make that gigantic leap to adapt them to the constituencies that you're trying to serve, the, the students that you're trying to teach. And I think that it takes, it takes a lot and it puts a lot of the onus on the individual teacher. And I think that's what environmental educators are trying to do uh, all around the states, also trying to do that all around the world. And it just becomes so, so apparent when you're in those situations where the, the, the tool doesn't, doesn't fix the problem. The tool does not match the, the problem, right? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's, it's an interesting way to put it about about having a tool and trying to adapt it. And I'm, I'm thinking of some of the behavioral science, you know, there's some really good behavioral science podcasts out there now where you can really, you can dive deep with some experts on some topics. And, and I definitely am guilty of listening to too many of them. Um, but I remember listening to one where they were talking about kind of how do you motivate communities to, or really individuals um, to take actions that support their community, but not really themselves. So things like opting into an optional service that allows more of your energy to come from new renewables, but you don't actually get a lot of benefit for it, or even if it costs something from you, um, which sounds probably familiar to you, but this was um, not steeped in kind of environmental ed, but instead in in social good and how do you motivate social good. I loved it because they talked about how changing the visibility was one of the biggest things that they found. And like, if your neighbors knew you were doing something that really mattered. And I've had a lot of conversations with people around here and folks from different, from backgrounds um, that maybe come from a more um, community oriented culture instead of individualists and collectivists being the opposite, right? Um, and, and does that work in both places, right? And, and the study I'm talking about really had a framework. It had an acronym um, you run through where you're kind of thinking about the visibility as one of those steps. And and there's a chance that you take it to the wrong place where it's considered different to kind of be visible in that way if it's seen as a backfired effect. And like, it could be, right? You can take the same model that works so well in one place, bring it somewhere else and, and actually do harm. And um, one of the reasons I, I really like behavioral science, and I'm, I'm hoping to stay alongside it, even though I'm doing slightly different work now, is they're all, it's all about trying and then adjusting, right? So there's this fear, I think, and you probably, you're familiar with this of like, if you're doing behavioral science, you're potentially manipulating people. It could be, um, it's it's thought of negatively by some fields or by some individuals. And I think the, the reason I'm strongly in favor of it is that they own that and just say, well, if we're not doing this as an experiment, we're doing it as a norm. So like, you know, if we're not, choosing to look at what happens when we default people into saving for retirement, then we're maybe letting people's like choice to opt in instead of being defaulted in could really be causing them harm too, right? So we just need to be measuring systematically and as quickly as possible with as low risk as possible, what's working and, and really be aiming for the better good of societal outcomes, which is a place maybe to debate. But I think in general, you see a lot of um, really 
like valuable individual and community outcomes that come from that kind of research. Yeah. And I, I think behavioral scientists like have a responsibility to wield that, that power and that expertise for the public good. And, you know, I, I'm sure there, there's a lot of like very negative examples of, of behavioral science taking advantage of us every single day. Look at our, our smartphones, our computers in our pockets designed by a bunch of folks that really understand the psychology behind what gets us to engage, what gets us to keep coming back, what gets us to go deep and, and really spend time there. Like that obviously is not the most productive example, but what, what you're talking about is, you know, as we're thinking of a, a societal and collective good, like I, you know, more power to you and more power to folks that are, are really thinking through those issues intentionally and coming with a lens of, of empathy and growth and openness that that obviously uh, evidenced by our conversation here today, you have in droves. Right. And I would really like, you know, press folks to, to think long and hard about those choices because I think we have the illusion of choice often where we think we have autonomy over something or ownership over it but in fact we do not and it's it's a lot of things around us and the architecture that we're that we're living in that really decides those outcomes so your your savings example is is such a is such a salient example that you know is is terrifying, but also at the same time, it shows the types of opportunities we may have to better our society. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the way you put that. You, this time I'm the one smiling because I think um, autonomy is such a really important term to bring up and such a big part of what makes certain behavioral interventions, especially health oriented ones work. Um, but it's also part of like what makes us satisfied as humans, like at work and our home life as toddlers. Like I think autonomy is so important. Um, but it can be an illusion. I think that's that's a good way to put it. And and sometimes that's okay. Sometimes that's a little bit scarier. So I appreciate the way you put that critical eyes needed. Of course. So for folks that are are thinking about like, you know, following a similar path to yours where you, you know, you you've gone through and you you jumped through academia a few times and you're, you know, you've explored kind of some different disciplines. Um, and if you landed in, into behavioral science specifically as as a field, what advice would you have for folks that are uh, curious about, you know, starting a career in that space? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would just note that one thing that was really heartening to me um, well in in this field was that there's not one path. And as this becomes more popular and embedded within methods that you can do it and keep learning about it as a complement to what you're already good at. So really in the job that I, I recently left where we were working together, I had more experience in kind of user research and stuff that would be more oriented around product and, and tech. Um, but I got, and, and media, you know, sorry, we got to work on, on teach outs together. Um, but having that meant that what I had in behavioral science could come into play in that work. And from what I'm hearing um, for people in the field who are really practitioners, which is the applied side of behavioral science and, and the less academic pure research side, but more of the like taking those theories into the world and seeing what happens, that it doesn't have to look like one thing. And I think we're going to see more and more investment and interest in doing this because it has results. Um, and there's some really great 
you know, approachable resources out there. A favorite of my team and in that job we had together were the Heath Brothers books. So check that out. It's a really good gateway to stuff. And they've got primary sources you can follow up. Um, I'd also say the um God, the decision corner from from um the decision lab, which is in in, in Quebec and um a few other like what are the podcasts that give you behavioral science theories in an interesting way, as long as you're you're at all interested. You mean you can start with with hidden brain and move onward, but I got deep enough into the such a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. Um there's also the next couple of layers where you really get two psychologists arguing with each other or two different, you know, behavioral economists or whoever, whatever is their discipline. Um, and I think those are a great way to learn a ton and, and you'll learn a lot from them. They, the, a lot of the structure of the decision corner um, podcast gives you kind of a, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to understand? Is there a way to get into this field? Um, and just generally, I think as a, as a personal aside, like I'm not really doing any of that right now. And so I think being comfortable with what is a weaving path. And I think it's really fun to talk to you about travel, but it's a very funny time to do it because it's 2021. I've hardly moved in the last year. Um, but I think, you know, holding the truths of what is now and what is later and what, what you can do um, with different core skills. So I think I'm using behavioral science methods in my job right now, but I'm working in health IT and product strategy and <laughs> really not at all core to what a user does or to changing your health though it's it's a downstream effect it's important to realize that you know you'll find you'll find a way to call back on those skills and experiences that matter even if they sit in a different part of your your toolbox for a while that's awesome that's that's a really fantastic overview and i'll be sure to link those resources in the show notes so one one other question I, I want to toss out to you is, you know, what advice do you have for folks that uh, are maybe considering, you know, taking a trip, you know, pandemic aside, uh, considering kind of going going on their own adventure? So maybe it's, you know, doing something like a study abroad. Maybe it's doing something like a, a service trip or, or even something as as long as a Peace Corps service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess thinking carefully about what you align to. So if it's something that's a little bit longer term, like I think I was benefited greatly from the chance to live with a family. So thinking about like what the program offers and are there ways that they're kind of giving you support and access to what is an authentic, you know, experience of someone who's from that locale or um, from an organization that you're working at. So I've, I've done a few really amazing service trips that are really embedded so that I'm alongside someone who's already working. I'm not just kind of plopped in, but even at that same rate, I think just knowing that when you get there, it might look different. And that if you roll with it, the best thing that's going to happen is that you see something new and um, you can, you can be careful about the ways that you, you are present, right? So being aware of yourself and, and what you're bringing is, is always most important, but um hopefully you're in a place where you get the chance to be be alongside other people as much as possible and and true even on like a road trip right like try to to leave your plans a little bit open um and and let come what someone recommends or take that chance you know there's a few really funny turns i took while studying abroad just because i followed someone to some place that probably wasn't the best first idea i've had but really taught me a lot and i got to see a lot of things and and 
um, I think you can within reason push your comfort zone to a place that gives you a more authentic view of anything. Um, yeah. Beautifully said, beautifully said. So if folks want to get in touch with you and contact you, you're, you're on Instagram and Twitter, right? Yeah. At Molly C. Maher. Is your name on both of those correct? Correct. The same um, for anyone who still actually uses Twitter in, in this year. I'm the elder millennial still on Twitter. <laughs> That's solid. Elder, elder stateswoman on Twitter. <laughs> I like it. Um, and I, I will, I, I do have to say this on Instagram, your profile says lakes, dogs, and big hugs. So <laughs> <laughs> only the best, right? <laughs> So with that, Molly, I want to thank you so much for joining. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to talk to you. Absolutely. And we will do it again, I'm sure. Definitely. All right. Like I said, Molly is simply brilliant and quite an engaging speaker. This was such a fun conversation to have, and we didn't even get into gardening or farming or her pursuit as an athlete, but rest assured that I will invite Molly back to the podcast again in the near future. I've linked uh, several of the resources in the show notes that she mentioned for your reference, and I would encourage all of you to connect with Molly on Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn and get those conversations about travel or behavioral science going with her. She's truly a treat. So thank you for listening to our conversation today. And for those of you who are new to the show, welcome. And for those of you who are returning, thank you so much for coming back. I wanted to announce that I've created a unique Instagram account for the podcast, and I'd love if we could connect there. The new account name is at Tetchawat underscore with underscore Benjamin underscore Morse. I will drop that one in the show notes. And I plan on putting updates, upcoming episodes, and some behind the scenes. And of course, announcing some recently published podcasts. Uh, so please go ahead and check that one out. And finally, uh, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps. And if you want to go above and beyond, I would really appreciate a review if you like the conversations that we are having here. So thank you so much for joining and I will see you next time.